Hey Robin, how's it going? Good, how are you, Will? I'm doing well. I'm feeling a lot better now that the weather's warm, people are on Healy Lawn playing frisbee, and it's just a fun time. Yeah, and warmer weather in DC means cherry blossoms around here. Uh, yeah, very exciting. And you know what else is exciting is talking to Sam Feist. Yeah, so our guest today for The Fly is Sam Feist, a CNN Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Vice President of the entire operation. So Will and I had a really interesting conversation about what it looks like to be a journalist in D.C., calling elections, the future of journalism, all that good stuff. That's right. We also talked about state legislatures and what their impact kind of looks like on elections. It was a really interesting line of dialogue altogether, I thought. Yeah, so without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. So Sam Feist from CNN join us today. How are you today? Great to be here. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. So obviously we want to be picking your brain about your long career, very illustrious at CNN all over the world. But before we get into um, Sam Feist the journalist, we want to learn a little bit more about Sam Feist the person. So um, I guess, what is your earliest memory of interacting with the news? So I, as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a journalist. I think my first... Uh, uh, memories of the news were in the early 70s. Um, two things come to mind. I remember I was at um, summer camp when President Nixon resigned. It was in August of 1974. Mm -hmm. I know that now. I don't think I knew that then. And um, all the camp counselors brought us inside into the one television at the camp to see this historic moment. And I just remember it like it was yesterday. I was five years old. Um, so between that and my parents would always bring us to the television when there was a space launch or um, that was during, you know, the, the, the Apollo program. I remember Walter Cronkite and the, and, and the, you know, the Apollo launches and just thought, wow, that was, that was amazing. And um, never really got, it, it never really got old. So, um, and then when I was in, in elementary school, the first time anyone ever played a videotape for us in the classroom was the movie The All the, Pre All the President's Men. So that was the first recorded uh, uh, television movie I've ever seen, uh, I ever saw. And uh, so it's all related. It's all related to the news. Yeah, just to follow up, um, I guess, is that why you decided to go into TV journalism and, um, you know, broadcast journalism instead of print journalism or what really, like... That. So I was interested in journalism in college. I was as much a print journalist as I was a broadcast journalist. Uh, uh, worked on my the, my the school newspaper at Vanderbilt University. Uh, it was really more journalism. Uh, journalism was I, it was a bit of a calling, uh, and I ended up at CNN and landed in television, and, and here we are. Yeah. yeah. So that's maybe a little bit about the origins. Um, but what was the first news story you remember reporting on? Actually, maybe either at CNN or before that. As a student, or yeah. in your well, when I was in college, there was a there was a story that that we were really proud of, uh, and I actually always believed that that student journalists, college um, reporters, really are practicing the same kind of journalism as uh, as professional and um, uh, reporters that that go into journalism as a career. And while I was at Vanderbilt, there was a, uh, a story about a member of the Vanderbilt Board of Trust who 
was, and this was in the um, late 80s, who was a member of an exclusive country club, a country club that did not allow, per its rules at the time, uh, blacks or Jews. And I found that to be remarkable, as did the other reporters at the at the Vanderbilt student newspaper. And um, we began to dig into that. And um, our reporting was uh, made made national news. And uh, at the end of the day, that member of the board of trust had to resign um, because it turned out to be pretty embarrassing for the university. And um, I don't think there's been a member of the Vanderbilt Board of Trust uh, who's been a member of such a club since then. And while, um, uh, you know, I think many country clubs and such have have changed their rules, some have not. Um, at any rate, it was a reminder that journalism is journalism. And whether you're in high school, college, or at the New York Times or CNN, you can have an impact by holding those in power accountable. And that was, for me, the first big lesson um, of journalism is that journalists can, can make a difference. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like quite the expose, um, really illustrating the importance of journalism right there. Um, and just going into that, um, are there any tips or best practices that you picked up as a student that you still use today after decades in the field in professional journalism? You know, journalism is um, at its core about holding those in power accountable, as I said, and I don't think that was any different in college than it is today. And I think that's the most important that's our most important mission. Um, people turn to us to find out what's going on in the world, and that's critical, and that's an essential uh, public service that journalists provide. But you know, at the end of the day, it's the the founders of the United States uh, put the First Amendment first, and freedom of the freedom of speech and freedom of the press are right there at the very top and that was because they knew that free expression by the citizens and a free press are essential to a democracy to holding those in power accountable and um, that's no different no matter the age or experience of a journalist I learned that in college and it's still very true today and this is you know those of us who 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 particularly cover government um, in the national news and at CNN, we think about that mission every day. Uh, ask tough questions so that those in power can explain and defend their their actions and positions. And sometimes they can't. And that's revealing. And that's that's our job. The press has the power ultimately, right? Along with the people to, to hold these leaders accountable. It's right. We have the power to hold them accountable. Um, and, and it's it's really an essential part of the checks and balance. The, the, the brilliance of, uh, of our democracy is checks and balances within, within the government, within the branches of government, but also outside the government. And um, how do you hold the government in check? You have freedom of speech and freedom of the press to to hold them accountable, to ask tough questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that mission's carried over at CNN as well. Yeah. That's our job. Um, every day we are in the White House briefing. We are in, in uh, we take the opportunity on Capitol Hill, which has um, uh, a tremendous amount of openness on Capitol Hill. The press uh, can, can roam the hallways with the members of Congress. And all day long, uh, CNN reporters are, 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 asking questions of senators and members of Congress, literally in the hallway about the news of the day, about actions they took, about actions they, they didn't take. And that's all part of, uh, of our accountability mission. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I guess we'll just jump right into your career at CNN a little bit. Sure. So 
Um, looking at the early days when you started out, we noted that you started out at the London Bureau. So how does that compare to somewhere like Washington, D.C.? How does it compare between, you know, covering international affairs versus domestic politics and just the feel of the different offices? Yeah, so my, uh, I was uh, an intern in the London Bureau when the first Gulf War started. And so uh, at the end of my internship, they hired me as a freelancer to because they, they, uh, they needed additional staff as mm-hmm. the Gulf War began. And uh, it was, it's a smaller bureau. Uh, than Washington, but it's still a very large hub for CNN even today. Uh, we have international programming out of London uh, every day of the week. Our international, uh, our, our digital team that covers Europe and the Middle East is based there. Our news gathering team that covers Europe and in, in the Middle East is based there. So it's, it, is a, it is a large operation. Um, Washington is, is the largest bureau. It's actually not just CNN's largest bureau. It's, it's, uh, it may be the largest news bureau in the world. We have wow. over 500 people who work out of the CNN Washington Bureau. Every every week we have between 50 and 60 hours of live uh, live CNN programming. Um, in addition, we have hundreds of reporters and producers who cover all the news in Washington and politics. So if you think about um, the news that comes out of Washington, uh, includes our coverage of the White House, the Pentagon, State Department, U.S. intelligence, American politics, most of our political reporters are based uh, in the Washington Bureau. Digital teams that cover um, all of those areas, law enforcement, justice, the Supreme Court. Um, there are a lot of different uh, beats, we call them, uh, based in Washington. And so we have, uh, we have uh, hundreds of journalists based here to cover that. So, so we have really two, two uh, roles in Washington, uh, in the Washington Bureau. The CNN programming, such as Wolf Blitzer's The Situation Room, or Jake Tapper's uh, program, The Lead, our Sunday program, State of the Union, Inside Politics, all those are programs that originate from the Washington Bureau. But in addition to that, we have our reporters who cover the news on TV and online for all of CNN's programs and platforms. Wow. So it's all kind of about this rich tapestry that you're kind of trying to manage and report and it's we, we We deal, we, you know, I, I like to think of the Washington Bureau as sort of almost divided into thirds, the programming side, the news gathering side, and then the digital reporting side. So between those, those, those three categories, um, uh, the, the news of the U.S. government, the news of American politics can reach um, our readers and viewers, viewers around the world. So um, it's a busy place. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and through your work, obviously, through these different um, kind of hubs, you've come to contact with many famous world leaders from Mikhail Gorbachev to President Obama to Margaret Thatcher. Um, as a producer, you know, take us behind the scenes in terms of what is it like to really interview these figures? Is, is there anything special you have to do or what's the process kind of like? So when, when we have an interview with a, with a, um, a world leader, um, such as a president or a prime minister, these are big interviews. These, are, these tend to not be uh, short five-minute interviews. They tend to be um, uh, lengthy uh, opportunities for a, a lengthy conversation. And so, but even if you have 15 or 20 or even 30 minutes, um, there are always more questions than there's time for an answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we prepare for an interview like that, we work with the anchor or the reporter who uh, will be conducting the interview. Um, it's, if it's for a program, there are producers on the team, researchers as well, uh, because we wanna, we wanna make sure that, that we give them an opportunity 
to make news if there's something that, that, that um, they haven't been asked before um, and to comment on whatever the news is of the day that is that, that our viewers and readers want to hear about. Um, so the process that I, I uh, usually follow is that um, I will work with a, a, a reporter or the anchor and a, and a researcher too. We each will begin to, to go through our own, our own set of questions and uh, what is it that we want to hear? And then we mesh them together. And uh, at the end of the day, um, some questions are always going to fall into the cutting room floor because there's mm -hmm. just not enough. Uh, there are always more questions than there is time. But it's about preparation. It's about research. It's about um, as best you can anticipating what the response is going to be so that you can either almost skip over that, that pat response and get to the meat of it or um, have a follow-up question where... Uh, the the newsmaker will be asked something that they haven't been asked before, or something that is new to the audience, where they can, um, uh, where we can learn something new um, that they haven't heard before. So, uh, the, it, it's it's really about preparation and being being um, being ready. And it's similar as we prepare for presidential debates. Uh, it's most of the the candidates on a debate stage. Um, have been asked about almost every topic you can imagine. And so the uh, opportunity on a debate stage is where you have a, a, a candidate for, say, a candidate for, for the presidency standing on the same stage with another candidate for the presidency. And so that unique opportunity also um, uh, uh, requires a tremendous amount of preparation uh, by, the, uh, by the, uh, the, the production team and the researchers. But you have an opportunity to ask a candidate and then get somebody else to respond. Mm -hmm. So anticipating their responses, the first candidate's responses, um, in order to uh, uh, um, uh, move you to a question for the next candidate can be really useful and really important. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you talked about this in a lot of broad strokes, but I'm curious, was there a particular leader or a particular figure that you interviewed or, you know, was assisting an interview where the interview really like stuck out to you, whether it was because you learned something unexpected from the person or something about the situation of the interview was really, you know, surprising, something like that. So, you know, it's interesting. You're thinking about it, looking, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, I was the, uh, the executive producer of a program called the Evans and Novak program in the, uh, in the late 90s. And in 1997, we interviewed um, a gentleman who was a New York businessman named Donald Trump. Wow. And in that interview, uh, at the end of that interview, um, we asked him if he would ever consider running for president. And I went back and looked at that interview wow. not too long ago because I, um, well, I just wanted to see if I could refresh my memory about what he said. And Interestingly, and I'm, I'll let you draw your own conclusions, he said he wasn't sure he could ever run for president because he said he was too honest, too mm -hmm. forthright. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was an interesting answer. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, I've been involved in, in, in multiple interviews with Donald Trump uh, over the years, but um, the fact that in 1997, we were asking him if he would think about running for president, yeah. and he demurred, he didn't really... Um, say yes or no, but I just thought that was, it was sort of, it sort of struck me yeah. that we were thinking about that, um, you know, 20 years before he actually uh, became president. Wow, that's definitely, you know, illuminating for sure. Um, so moving from, you know, your time as an interviewer and a journalist also into your other field of work, which is calling elections and forecasting elections. It's definitely really difficult, you know, work. So 
Um, first of all, I guess it's kind of a similar question. Were there any elections that definitely stuck out to you in terms of in CNN and the um, just in the back room, a lot of moving parts going on or any particular election night where the call was really difficult to make? So election nights uh, for us are, it's like, they are like our Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. um, they are the, the most complicated uh, productions that we do. Uh, they involve uh, hundreds, if not, some. I would say, um, north of a thousand CNN staffers are touching an election night. Um, and uh, everyone is a little bit different. They're midterm elections. Mm -hmm. uh, some, most of them are resolved on election night. Sometimes they're not, such as this, uh, the 2022 uh, election. There are presidential elections, which are always fascinating. Um, usually they're resolved on on. Um, election night, but sometimes they're not. And sure. I've been involved in two of them that weren't. Mm -hmm. The 2000 election, which was not resolved for uh, uh, over a month after the election because of the Florida recount. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, uh, the 2020 election, which was not resolved for almost a week um, because uh, we, we were waiting for the final results in multiple states, mail-in ballots, took a long time for for the um, election authorities to, to tabulate uh, the ballots, particularly the mail-in ballots. And we didn't declare the winner until um, uh, Saturday morning after the Tuesday uh, election when mm -hmm. Joe Biden um, ultimately, uh, ultimately won. Every election is different. Um, the most important thing for those of us involved in projecting the winner is that we we've, uh, follow the mantra that it's better to be right than to be first. There is no rush mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to call the winner. Uh, the consequences of making a mistake on election night are significant. And so we are careful. We have a team of uh, data scientists and statisticians who work on our decision desk to help us make a projection to help evaluate um, what percentage of the vote is might still be outstanding, what are, um, uh, you know, what are the... Um, um, uh, what's the likelihood that the person ahead will will be ahead at the end of the night, and and um, is it possible that there could that it could be within a recount range? And we do that state by state, district by district, um, and make an analysis. And as I said, most on most election nights, we're able to project uh, the winner in, of the presidency um, sometime over the course of election night in two thousand and eight. We projected Barack Obama the winner at 11 p.m. Eastern time when the polls closed uh, on the West Coast, and we projected him the winner at exactly uh, 11 o'clock. But um, uh, I, as I said, this year uh, or in, in 2020, it took us day after day after day. It took us until yeah. the uh, uh, we were able to make a projection in the state of Pennsylvania on Saturday morning mm -hmm. after the election before we were able to announce that Joe Biden had, in fact, um, uh, uh, won the presidency as the 46th uh, president. So uh, uh, the most important thing for us is that we're right. Um, we know that in this country, election, the results of elections are learned um, from the news media first rather than from the election authorities because the election authorities uh, won't be certified, won't certify the votes uh, until later in November, sometimes even in December. And so the American people learn from the national news media um, who the winner of the presidential election is. So it's a tremendous amount of responsibility on the shoulders of, of, of uh, those organizations that make the projections. So we're careful about it. We're, we're thoughtful. We know the consequences of being wrong are significant and um, uh, we'll take as long as it takes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Um, really fascinating stuff. So 
Um, going into that, you know, you mentioned the national news media are some of the leaders in, you know, helping people understand what's going on in an election. And so, um, you know, people can go to CNN, but they can also go to Fox News or New York Times or 538 to, you know, look at how election results come out. So um, what is CNN method CNN's methodology like? Um, does it stand out from other organizations or all are all these organizations following a similar playbook that, um, you know, yeah, what makes CNN stand out or not stand out? So there, you know, on a, when it comes to election results, uh, we report the raw votes as, mm -hmm. it, as they are reported from election authorities. And uh, those raw votes are, should be the, uh, identical or almost identical to the raw votes that are reported um, by other news organizations. There may, one may be ahead a couple votes for a few minutes and one may be behind a couple votes for a few minutes. But because the results are coming from from um, official election uh, authorities in, in individual communities or states, um, the, the raw votes um, are very similar across news organizations. The, but each news organization makes a projection on election night at a different time. And it's up to each organization when they have the confidence um, based on the uh, um, uh, uh, the results they see in front of them to make a de make a decision. Uh, we have a team of um, uh, an extraordinary team of of data scientists and political scientists, as I said, who help us look at these election results. Um, they use statistical models to tr to make an analysis of where the outstanding votes are, um, what percentage of vote is is in what are the what's the expected vote in this particular community so that we can um, make a decision and every every news organization has their own decision team um, the, uh, the the each of the television networks CNN NBC ABC Fox um, uh, as well as the Associated Press and so um, we do them independently uh, hopefully we all come to the same conclusion eventually mm -hmm. sometimes a little bit ahead sometimes uh, one may be a little bit behind. We're in no rush, and um, I'm a big believer that we should not be competing against each other mm -hmm. to race to get an answer. Um, the most important thing is that we're all correct mm -hmm. because um, um, we have a problem with truth in America. People um, uh, don't always agree on facts, and uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem in America. When it comes to election results, it's really important that we, uh, uh, that we get it right. Absolutely. And you said for CNN, too, it's important to be right rather than first. Absolutely. For Absolutely. It's that's that is uh, um, every every election night. Um, we have a, uh, a a meeting with the team that makes these uh, these decisions and these projections. And this is what we say over and over. It's far better to be right than to be first. Um, and uh, we are we are not in a race. We just need to be accurate. Absolutely. But just out of curiosity, not for you to pick on other news organizations, but do you feel like others maybe have a different approach of wanting to be first rather than right? Or is there some tension in the media when it comes to that? I think that there are some that are, that are, um, there are some that are a little bit more aggressive and I think that they have to be careful. Um, the consequences of being wrong are really, uh, are really significant. Um, I think all of us who were involved in the 2000 election, um, when the news media, uh, members of the news media, because of some data that was first reported in the state of Florida that, was, that turned out to be inaccurate, um, uh, initially reported that, that Al Gore was the winner, then reported that George W. Bush was the winner, and then 
end of the night, we don't know who the winner is. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, that didn't serve the public well. I think that uh, that when Congress went and looked into uh, how the news, how the the uh, the news media reported on that election, they found that there was a that there was a race to be first, and I think that that was an important lesson for us that we need to uh, think a lot more about being right than about being first. For sure. Do you think that you know you've mentioned two thousand and twenty twenty as it seems like two different kinds of turning points for um, election trajectories? So do you think that two thousand really you know set this tone for how um, election reporters reported on 2020 or what kind of lessons do you think were brought from 2000 and 2020? Well, it certainly did for me. Um, you know, I've every year on election night, I um, ask the, the leaders of our uh, decision team to reread the independent report on how the news media uh, reported on the 2000 election and also reread the the congressional testimony on how the news media um, handled the 2000 election. And I do that uh, and I read it myself. It's, 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 my, it's the last thing I do before I go to bed on the night before election night, every election. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do it is to remind myself and make sure that, that members of our team are also reminded of what the consequences are. Um, and I think the stakes are even higher now in 2023, last election 2020, than they were in 2000. Um, because uh, it's trust in the media is um, is in particularly in some communities um, is not what it should be, and so it's really important. Uh, I believe that that those of us who will be telling the American people who their leaders are and who their next president is that we're that we're right and that we are careful and that we're deliberative, and so um, uh, so I certainly. Um, uh, took a lesson from the 2020, excuse me, the 2000 election, um, that uh, uh, we have a great responsibility and we have to be careful. And, I'm, I, and I remind myself of that every year, every election, um, uh, every time uh, we prepare to go into, um, uh, into an election night to um, uh, make sure that, that uh, we, don't, we don't make any mistakes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I guess looking at you know, what happened in 2020, do you think any any lessons are going to be carrying into how you approach your work in 2024, which is coming up sooner than we think? Uh, 2024 is not that far away. <laughs> um, so uh, we're always, you know, we have to change the way we cover an election because the way Americans vote is always changing. Mm-hmm. So the 2020 election um, was the first election, first presidential election where mail-in votes had a uh, represented a substantial number of the votes in some states they were almost all they represented almost all of the votes um, other states uh, less so but that has an in- enormous impact on how we um, approach an election night because it takes longer to count mail-in ballots than it does um, in-person ballots because in-person ballots tend to be um, cast usually today someone will fill out a form. Um, with a, a pen or a pencil. That form goes through a scanner. Uh, the paper is, is, is generally retained by the election authorities, but the scanner reports the number of votes from that precinct um, pretty quickly on election night, and we, and we know the results. Mail-in ballots are completely different. They come in an envelope. The envelope has to be opened. It has to be flattened. The, um, the, the ballot within the envelope has to be uh, run through a scanner um, in most cases, the signature on the outside of a 
of the envelope has to be verified against a signature on file. That takes time. And so the process by which states um, count those ballots is varies from state to state. Mm-hmm. So some states don't even begin opening those envelopes until election day. Some of them don't even begin opening them until election night. We have to be aware of that so that we know um, when those ballots are likely to come in so that we can offer a, um, an assessment of, of uh, how many likely votes are outstanding. It cha- has completely changed the way uh, election nights proceed on our end. So we're always reevaluating uh, the best way to, um, uh, uh, to look at an election. Um, we wanna make sure that we prepare our audiences that sometimes this is gonna take a while. If it's a close election now in America, um, particularly in states with high percentages of mail-in ballots, particularly in states like Pennsylvania, where the law prevents election officials from opening those ballots until election day, our audiences need to be prepared that this is going to take a while. Mm-hmm. And those who who might be um, uh, demanding the results of an election on election day, well, there's, there's nothing you can do to rush it. The the um, election authorities have to follow the laws that their legislatures pass. And for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, if the legislature says you cannot open a ballot until election day um, and you cannot begin processing those ballots, um, you can assume that if the election is close in Pennsylvania, it's going to take a, a, a good while to know the results in the 2020 election. It took five days. Yeah. yeah. And do you see mail-in ballots maybe playing a similar role in 2024 and beyond as well? You know, Is this our new political reality where we'll have to maybe wait for a few days in some states to figure out the elections? I, I think so. I think we saw that uh, some states like Utah were already using um, um, mail-in ballots as the primary method of, of voting. But COVID certainly accelerated um, the use of mail-in ballots across the country. And I think we will see more of it. Um, again, every state has, has different rules. Some states require the ballots to be received at the election authorities by the time the polls close on election day. Some states allow a week or even two weeks after. So if it's a close election and you're, um, wait, the, the results depend on, on a state uh, like California, for example, which will accept ballots for, for quite a long time after election day, well, then you just have to wait. There's, we, we may not know the answer if it's a close election. And um, I talked about the 2000 election. That was an election that was decided by, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 500 votes. And so if it's that close um, and we don't know the answer, we just have to wait. Have to be patient. Mm-hmm. We have to be patient. Uh-huh. And we have to make sure that the country is patient because there is, um, sometimes there's an antsiness among the electorate and among um, the people inside the campaigns to actually have uh, an answer. And if it's a close election and the voting procedures as as dictated by the um, uh, uh, the leaders of a particular state, allow for people to mail in ballots um, that are that can be received for a week or two after election day. It's not the news media's fault that we don't know the answer. It is um, our responsibility to be patient and help our audiences uh, understand that sometimes it just takes a while, and sometimes we just don't know the answer. If an election isn't close in a particular state, we um, uh, can usually project the winner uh, on election night, but it really depends on how close it is. Yeah. 
Do you think there's a burden on state legislatures to maybe change the mail-in ballot procedures or make it more efficient, or is this just something that we should become accustomed to? Um, I think that that some state legislatures have changed their rules to make it to begin the processing of ballots because I think that's the biggest holdup. Mm-hmm. I think if you if for you know state election authorities only have so many election workers, and if you allow them to process ballots as they are mailed in and keep the results you know, locked into their systems or at least process the ballots and, and open them, check the signatures and prepare them to be scanned, uh, that can make an enormous difference and really speed up the, uh, um, uh, the reporting of the results. So I think we're seeing that in some states, but other states haven't changed the rules. And in those cases, we just have to be patient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so really great conversation about um, looking to election and election watching, but um, we're going to take a step back and just look at, you know, journalism writ large because you've had a long and illustrious career in it. So um, I guess like looking back over um, the several decades you've been with CNN, but also just a journalist in general, what do you think is the biggest threat facing journalism or what are obstacles you see in the future of journalism as an industry right now? I think that that um, not just journalism, but we as a mm-hmm. as a society um, uh, have to come to an agreement on basic facts. And I think that there is um, now more than any time in my career, there seems to be a disagreement on basic facts. And I think that's a dangerous place for us to be in because how can policymakers make policies if the policymakers and their constituents and the public at large doesn't even agree on what the facts are? And that's um, a... Uh, I think a relatively new phenomenon. And I think some of that comes from the fact that um, a lot of Americans are in their own information ecosystems. And and so you have people on the left who may be in an information ecosystem, whether it's through um, uh, news outlets, podcasts, um, their, 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 their social networks, their social group, um, where they hear their own views echoed back to them and reflected back to them. And they, they're not exposed to the views of people um, uh, on the right or in the center. And you have the exact same ecosystem on the right where you have websites, YouTube channels, social media uh, outlets, television networks, where that information diet is um, is very much a a right-centered information diet, and they don't—they're not exposed to views of people on the left. And then there, then and there are fewer people in the middle, um, and the people on the left and the right are frequently not exposed to the views of the people in the middle. Well, that's a problem if our if the our the public is stratified into uh, different information ecosystems because those on the on the right and the far right. Um, may have a have a very very different worldview than those on the right. Excuse me, those on the left and the far left. Um, and the most important thing I think that we can do in the news media is um, not pick sides, left or right. Live in the world of facts. Be able to explain the basis of our information, our facts. If we make a mistake, make sure that we correct it so that we have the. Um, uh, that people have the confidence in what we're what we're reporting, and then let people on from the pol- from the political wings argue about what is the best policy. But having a disagreement about facts is, I think, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I feel like in these information ecosystems, which is a great phrase, um, it's easy for disinformation to kind of come in. 
how do fact checkers, either at CNN or other news medias, retain credibility while these ecosystems are, you know, causing people to become more polarized and to, you know, reject sources that don't align with their political views? Well, the first thing I say to everybody across the political spectrum is um, make sure that your source of information is a trusted source. And how do you know they're a trusted source? And what is their track record? And what what do they base what do they base their information on? And where do they where does their credibility come from? Um, because there are a lot of sources of information um, that all of us can be exposed to that are uh, inaccurate, that are intentionally peddling misinformation or are peddling um, rumors or things that, that, that simply have never been verified. And I think that's dangerous because then um, the consumers of that information, um, particularly if they believe it to be true, and that falls, that returns us back to that previous conversation about information ecosystems and, and inability to agree on facts. Um, I think that trusted sources of information um, news organizations like myself, we need to do uh, uh, tr- have a tremendous amount of information behind what we report. Um, we need to check our facts. We need to double check our facts. We need to check our sources. We need to stress test our information and our sources. And if we make a mistake, we need to correct it. And that is part of um, uh, uh, what professional journalism does. Um, there may be information that changes um, once we've reported it, but if we update it and we, we explain it to our, our audiences, um, uh, hopefully they will understand. Um, but it is really about a, a, an absolute focus on being right. When we were talking about election results earlier, I said it's, it's far more important to be um, right than to be first, but that's true about everything we report. Um, if we're not certain about something, we should pause and double check and gain more information before we report um, the news to uh, uh, to a wide audience. And that's something that, that our audiences have come to depend on. And that's something that I would invite anybody listening to this podcast, anybody who is um, uh, uh, interested in living the world of fact, a very simple request, check your sources. What is the source of the information that is now in your head that you may be spreading? Is it from a friend? Is it from a friend who is a knowledgeable source? Or is it from a friend who may not be knowledgeable about what they just told you? Is that podcaster a knowledgeable first? Do they have firsthand information? Or are they passing on information that may or may not be true? And what about something that you read on the internet? Where does, what is, check your sources. Where do they get their information? Um, I think that's something that that that, that uh, uh, Americans have um, are doing less and less of these days, and I don't think that's good for our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of great advice for uh, you know anybody consuming the media um, and consuming news media. Um, so, final question before we go into our lightning round, which is, what advice do you have for aspiring journalists like us at the Fly or anybody else listening to this podcast who's interested in getting their you know getting their leg in the door? Practice journalism. Practice journalism in, uh, at, at any level, in high school, in college, in uh, early part of your career. Um, uh, local outlets, we need desperately need more local mm-hmm. news journalists mm-hmm. in this country. Um, uh, uh, but if you're practicing journalism, um, find a story that our audiences, your audience will only know, un- only learn about because you were the person 
that reported it. Mm-hmm. Um, develop sources, develop relationships, uh, and um, and and I always like to say to young journalists, break break some news. Break news meaning report on something that nobody else knew about. Um, much like uh, at, at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about um, a story that 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 student journalists reported on at my university, mm-hmm. uh, Vanderbilt University, when. Uh, when we learned uh, about the background of a member of our board of trust, that was a story that that we brought to the world because we dug into it. Yeah, thank you so much. That's definitely important advice that Will and I will be taking. Um, so I guess now we'll move into our lightning round, which is a fly tradition where we ask three short questions and get three relatively short answers. Are you ready? Not, I, I'll never be ready for a lightning <laughs> round, but I will, uh, but I'll do my best. Sure thing. So our first question is, um, I personally am a little bit skeptical of if British food is good, but since you've spent mm. a lot of time in Britain, do you have a favorite? Oh gosh. <laughs> I, you know, you, you just can never go wrong with fish and chips. So mm, I'll just, yeah, I'll just take the easy so way true. out and say you can never go wrong with fish mm. and chips. Of course. And we also know that you're a big runner. How do you prep for a race? You know, do you have any race day tips or, or any advice? Well, I don't know how big of a runner I am. My daughter is my do- I have two daughters and um, one of my daughters is, is a bigger runner and she dragged me, uh, dragged me into running, but hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, there's a great race here in, in, uh, Washington on, you know, different communities have the turkey trots, mm-hmm. but here in Washington, the turkey trot starts right near the white house, runs up Pennsylvania Avenue, I say up because you're running up Capitol Hill, <laughs> in front of the Capitol, around um, Capitol Hill, and back down towards the White House. It is, um, as 5Ks go, I, I challenge any community to find a, uh, a 5K that goes to more interesting places. For sure. I haven't tried that one yet, so I guess I'll have to keep an eye out you for You have to that be here for Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and then, it's a little chilly in D.C. today, but spring's around the corner, so a favorite thing about spring in the city? Well, uh, the, I, I, I love living in Washington. I find it, I think it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And one of the things that is really beautiful about the city um, happens every spring. It's the cherry blossoms um, around the Tidal Basin, around the Jefferson Memorial. There are uh, hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of, of cherry trees. And um, usually the, the third or fourth week of March, uh, they just turn into extraordinary pink and white uh, blossoms. Those trees are all over the city, but they really um, are especially uh, 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 all around the uh, the tidal basin and around the Potomac River. And so, uh, if you have a chance to see the cherry blossoms in Washington in March, you shouldn't miss that opportunity. One hundred percent. Also, you know, if you're running, cherry blossom five k. Absolutely. Take a there you go. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us at the Fly Sam. It's been a great conversation. Thanks. Good luck to you guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of The Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. 
Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.